0: better known to us today as the Apostle Paul, and I will use uh, both names interchangeably today, um, that God used Paul to bring the gospel into the wider Mediterranean world where Jewish communities were present, but very importantly, into the Gentile, uh, that is the non-Jewish communities of the region. Up to this point, the gospel had gone out from Jerusalem and mainly into Judea and Samaria, But with the Apostle Paul and his co-workers, the gospel will eventually reach to the ends of the known Mediterranean world by the end of Paul's life. God's calling of of Saul of Tarsus and his dramatic conversion recorded for us in Acts chapter 9 is a tremendous turning point in early church history that still resonates with us today. The fact that today we have a global church consisting of both Jews and non-Jews, is due to how the Holy Spirit transformed and directed Paul's life and others in cross-cultural missions into the wider world. But Paul's missionary journeys are still to come in the future, chapters in Acts. Paul's early career was that of a zealous Pharisee, a religious devotee of the Jewish law that relentlessly persecuted The early church. In Acts chapter 7 to 8, we read that uh, Paul, at this stage, still known as Saul, was present when the enraged religious leaders stoned Stephen to death and that he approved of that killing. To Saul of Tarsus, the killing of Stephen was a necessity to protect the purity of the Jewish faith. The early church was seen then as a dangerous Jewish sect that followed a false and crucified prophet named Jesus. The church was a dangerous and corrupting movement in the eyes of the Jewish authorities and religious zealots like Saul and therefore had to be stamped out to protect the faith of the larger Jewish community. In Acts chapter 9, Saul obtained authorization to travel to Damascus nearly 220 km northeast of Jerusalem to hunt down Christians there and to bring them back to face imprisonment in Jerusalem So as the gospel spread out from Jerusalem persecution followed the gospel outwards as well Now in the days without cars trains and planes 220 km is not a short distance to travel Uh, You need to be pretty motivated to uh, travel that far And the Pharisee that was Saul was very much motivated to travel the distance in his zeal to destroy the early church movement. If we were reading the book of Acts for the first time and stopped here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Saul represents a terrifying, vicious enemy of the church. If we were recruiting for a missions agency, Saul would be the last man we want to meet on the street much less interview for our next missionary appointment. But God had other plans for Saul. In God's eyes, Saul's current life as the chief persecutor of the church is not the real Saul. What God sees in Saul is the heart of an apostle who will bring the gospel to the nations in the teeth of murderous opposition and brutal sufferings. The remarkable transformation that we see in Saul of Tarsus into what we will come to know as the Apostle Paul can only be possible through the transforming work of God's Spirit. So a big idea for today is that God uses Spirit-transformed lives to change the world. We experience a Spirit-filled transformed life through God's Redemption, by being redeemed, renewed, and repurposed for God's plans. First, God's redemption. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Redemption is a slave market term. In the ancient Roman world, if you went to a slave market, uh, you you needed help, you want to buy a slave to help you in a house or the field or the farm, you went to a slave market to redeem a slave, to buy a slave as your own property. It's the same imagery uh, used in the Hebrew biblical world. As Bible scholar N.T. Wright puts it, in Exodus, God went to the slave market called Egypt to redeem his chosen people who were enslaved by the Egyptians. When God redeems us, there is a price to be paid. And that price was paid by His Son, Jesus Christ. The price of our redemption is Jesus Christ. We were once enslaved into a life of sin and destruction, and God redeemed us to be part of His own family, redeemed, forgiven, to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, for a Pharisee like Saul, the idea that they needed to be redeemed by God through the person of Jesus Christ was outrageous, scandalous. They considered themselves already redeemed. They had the law and the religious traditions. They had strict observance and adherence to the law and traditions. They believed themselves to be already living out God's will. Saul, in particular, had an outstanding religious pedigree. In Philippians chapter 3, he would write, he was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, Saul came from a family of devout and dedicated Jews. Perhaps he had multiple generations of his uh, parents, grandparents, etc. serving uh, in the Jewish community, in the Jewish religious community. He had committed to and attained a high knowledge and practice of the Torah, the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And for actual sincere faithfulness and obedience to the law, He was faultless. He was not just a uh, nominal um, uh, Jew, He, he was a devout practicing Jew. More than that, his obedience is not just limited to the letter of the law, his loyalty to the law, and by extension to God in his mind, was actually demonstrated by his zeal, his undying dedication and passion to defend the law and religious tradition, By going after the church, in persecuting and destroying the church movement. So in in Saul's life, he's actually living out God's will. So in his conservative religious world, uh, Saul was the elite of the elites, the very best of the best, and elect within the elect to safeguard the religious faith of the nation, of the Jewish nation. In his religious world, he didn't need any further redemption. He was already faultless and righteous before the law. But his, world, his worldview is about to break down and collapse under his feet. The world of Saul, the Pharisee, ended on the road to Damascus. On that road, he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. The very one whom Saul must have thought to be a false messiah and prophet was crucified and killed turned out to be the living son of God, which meant that the resurrection was real. That was what the early church preached, that Jesus came back from the dead, which meant that Christians whom Saul had been persecuting with murderous zeal had been right all along. Saul realized that instead of being an elite religious devotee of God as he had imagined himself to be all along, he was actually the chief of sinners or the worst of sinners by his persecution of the church as he himself put it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. When Saul encountered the, the glorious heavenly light and the voice of the risen and exalted Christ, he must have realized that Old Testament scripture which he had used to accuse and rebuke Christians had been pointing to Christ after all. At that time, among the devout, devout Jews, there will be passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalms chapter 2 that were help by some to be pointing to God's Son as the coming Messianic King. And Saul's encounter with the risen Christ must have made him realize that Jesus was actually the Messianic Son of God. We read in Acts chapter 9, verse 20 earlier, that says that Paul began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is in line with the early preaching of the church that saw Jesus as the Son of God in terms of his Messianic kingship. As a Pharisee and persecutor of the church, Saul was very sincere and did what he thought to be God's will. But you can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. Sincerity and right intentions are not sufficient to ensure that you are living according to God's will. Only a personal encounter with Jesus can change the destiny of your life. And this was the experience of Saul. The dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus showed that Saul was not heading in the right direction in his life. He was going the very opposite way of what the the Lord wanted for him. All of his life identity, purpose and direction broke down on that road to Damascus. He thought he was going the right way. He discovered he was stuck in the wrong place, enslaved by his misplaced zeal and misguided hatred of Christians. Saul discovered that he needed to be redeemed. The dramatic encounter with the Lord blinded him and he found himself reliant on the very Christians he hated to show him the way to be healed and saved. The Lord sent a disciple called Ananias to Saul in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, and Ananias says to Saul, "Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit." And in the next verse we read that Paul was healed of his blindness and was baptized. Paul's, uh, Saul's encounter with Christ and his redemption marked the start of his spirit-filled transformation. Now, not all of us would have such a dramatic encounter with Christ, but our conversion and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is undoubtedly the work of the Holy Spirit. There may be some of us here today that could be thinking that, you know, I'm living a decent life, I try to do good, my parents and grandparents were or are good Christians, I'm good friends with important Christian leaders. I give my tithe and offerings to the church regularly, or I constantly give to charity. It could be that I could say I've been successful in life. I've done well for myself. I'm respected in my, uh, in my community. I'm, I'm respected in my profession. And the list of accomplishments, status, and track record could just go on and on they won't give you redemption. You could have have all of that, but if you have not personally surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you do not have redemption. We may be sincere in all our efforts and good works, if we do not have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we do not have eternal life. Even someone as devoutly religious as Saul need a redemption. We're not even talking about immorality or, or you know, um, a willful sinning. Saul was a religious devotee, faultless before the law. For all our good works and accomplishments, if we are not having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are still in our sins and we need to be redeemed through Jesus Christ. So the first step in our spirit-filled transformation is redemption through a personal encounter and faith relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Christ and Christ alone, not our money, not our connections, not our status, not our relationships, not our good works, in Christ alone is our redemption and salvation. And so here's our first reflection question. Have you fully embraced Christ's redemption? In what ways could you still be holding back? Thank you. Thank you. Second, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit as new creation in Christ. That is to say, we are remade to become like Christ. When Saul was struck by the heavenly light on the road to Damascus, he discovered that he couldn't see anything after that. In fact, he was blinded blinded for three days. His world literally became dark. We can only imagine uh, what could have gone through his mind in those three days. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, uh, it does say that he was praying. And so Saul must have wrestled with God in prayer as his whole world was turned upside down. Uh, Saul had a long way to climb down from being a religious elite to accepting and confessing before God that he had been wrong all along. When the Lord finally sent Ananias to lay hands on Saul, scales fell from his eyes and he could finally see again. The fresh new light must have seemed to Saul like new life. He must have realized that his old life, like the scales, has now fallen away. Nothing would ever be the same for Saul again. We saw earlier Saul's religious uh, pedigree, his very impressive uh, pedigree in uh, Philippians chapter 3. This was what gave him identity, purpose and standing in his community. This was his badge of honor and accomplishment. This was the totality of his life. All of that now is to be put aside and abandoned for the life that Christ now calls him to. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What was important to him? What gave him motivation and meaning? What drove him to succeed each day? That life now is to be put aside and abandoned. But what would become of Saul if his old life is to be abandoned? New creation. When Saul was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, he became a new man. Practically unrecognizable to those around him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 21, those who heard the new Saul preach in the synagogues were astonished. They asked, Isn't he the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among the church, among the Christians who called upon the name of Jesus? They were simply baffled at the change in, Paul's, uh, in Saul's life at that point. Even the disciples in Jerusalem, did not quite believe what they heard about this new Saul, given his former zeal to persecute and destroy the church. It's as if someone who is your worst enemy, who is always constantly going after you, criticizing you, trying to stir up trouble, suddenly overnight is singing your praises you know, having good uh, Facebook posts about how good you are, uh, giving you recommendations on LinkedIn and all that. it's, uh, It's suspicious, isn't it? It's quite a dramatic change. Now, when God calls us to new life in Christ, we naturally hold back at the thought that we have to abandon and leave behind the old life. but we must remember that God does not call us to an inferior life to what we once had. It's the exact opposite. When God calls us to abandon the old life, God is at the same time calling us to something far superior, beyond what we can ever think or imagine. In First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, what no eye has seen, what no ear have, has heard, and what no human mind has conceived or imagined, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. Only when the Holy Spirit is renewing us that we are able to embrace the unimaginable, surpassing greatness of God's salvation through Jesus Christ and the glory that awaits those who believe in Christ. This is the gospel of the cross, stumbling block and scandal to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, but to all whom God has called Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Whatever you face in this life, whatever fears we have, whatever challenges lie ahead. If you have Christ and His Spirit works in you, you have the power of God and the wisdom of God to bring you through life and see God's purposes accomplished in your life. We may have a lot of methods a lot of sources of advice and wisdom. We have science. We have techniques. We rely on one another to get us through life's challenges, but at its core, you have the power of God and the wisdom of God through Christ Jesus in your life that will bring you through. How does this power of a gospel-driven, spirit-filled life change us? First, we have a new relationship with God. Saul thought that he had a relationship with God, but his encounter with Christ showed that he needed to be redeemed to really have that life relationship with the everlasting God. Second, we have new relationships with people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says that from now on, having uh, been reconciled with Christ, from now on, we regard no one from a worthy point of view. In the past, without Christ, our human relationships are marked by domination, oppression, exploitation, jealousy, envy, anger. We judge quickly, we criticize harshly, and we gossip freely. But now that we have the ministry of reconciliation based on God's love and forgiveness, we can build up and heal brokenness in human relationships. Third, we have a new way of living, one that is not governed by the desires and ambitions of the flesh, but one that is governed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This renewed life will change our perspectives and our worldviews on family, career, possessions, earthly riches and lifestyles. How can we start experiencing our new life in Christ? Well, we have to let go of the old life. Will we let go of our old life so that we can fully embrace all the unimaginable, surpassing goodness that God has prepared for us through the life of Jesus. And so here's our second reflection question. Is Christ your highest and constant desire? What might be some of the competing desires and ambitions that you have, that you have to give up in order for you to gain Christ? Thank you. the Holy Spirit creates and directs our lives in a new direction. Having left the old life, we are, giving up, we are given a purpose and life direction that God will lead us to live. Saul had used his energy, knowledge, experience, and status for the wrong reasons in the wrong direction in his old life. We have seen that this old way of life had to be abandoned. However, this does not mean that God can't or won't use Saul's talents, zeal, knowledge of scripture. In fact, uh, Saul's background and knowledge made him the ideal choice to defend the gospel against Jewish teachers and devout Jews, which Saul did. As well as to defend Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians, against pressure from Jewish Christians to conform to the Old Testament law, which Saul will eventually do as he took the gospel to the Gentile world. Saul's strengths, his character, his zeal, and knowledge of scripture were all there. But now God uses them in a new direction for a new purpose in preaching and defending the gospel in the face of extreme opposition and persecution. This is what uh, the Lord told Ananias about Saul's new purpose and direction in life in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 to 16. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Saul the great persecutor of the church would become one of the most persecuted apostles of the early church. It was a 180-degree transformation of Saul's life and direction. Saul would go through beatings from his enemies, whippings from the Jewish religious authorities, stoning, being shipwrecked, cast adrift a day and a night on the open seas, Many times he will be in danger, physical danger, from both Gentiles and Jews as he carried the gospel to the far corners of the Mediterranean world. If that were not enough, he will face opposition and criticism from some of his own church members and other Christians as well. He'll be weighed down by concern uh, for his uh, churches. He will go sleepless. He will go hungry. He will go thirsty. For the sake of the gospel. Now, in a human sense, all of these took their toll on Saul's body. But this is what he had to say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Therefore, we do not lose heart in the face of all this opposition, all this suffering. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That means the glory, the surpassing good, goodness and blessing of the Lord that he will receive far outweighs whatever opposition, hardship, and suffering that he's encountering uh, for the sake of the gospel. The Lord had a calling on Saul's life that will involve much hardship and suffering. There's always a cost to faithful obedience to God's calling in life in varying degrees and in very different contexts. But God's new purpose for Saul, his new life direction, difficult as it may be, had an unshakable destiny, eternal glory, unimaginable joy with the Lord and Master of his life. When we give up ownership of our lives, our gifts, our talents, our experience, our possessions, God often takes what we surrender to him and transforms them for a new purpose and direction. Where once our jobs and careers were our source of identity and pride, now God makes the marketplace as our mission field to show not only show excellent performance and commitment, but also to display Christ's lordship in how profit is made and how business is done. What would you do if your workplace rival backstabs you or your customer asks for a bribe? What would a Christian do if the top management pressures her accounts team to fudge the numbers or change the records in an unethical way? Our families once the source of either worthy pride or dispute, now can be redeemed and transformed in how Christ-centered love and forgiveness are displayed. What would a Christian do to heal past family disputes and deal with hurtful words from relatives? Some of you may be in college life or school College life or school life is not just about academic excellence, it's also about learning how to live responsibly in God's world as ambassadors of Christ. What would you do if your friend, devastated by a problem or setback, comes to you on the eve of a major exam for both of you? Would you save your exam or help your friend? The Apostle Paul had a standard measure of what it means to live a life of purpose for God in the face of hardship and opposition. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If we are not well, if we are engrossed by what by what is seen, we will not catch the all-surpassing, unseen glory that God is working for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The measure of the Spirit-filled transformed life is seen in our willingness and faith to work for what is yet unseen to pray for impossible things as though they were already possible, to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to bless when we are cursed, to answer kindly when spoken to roughly, to experience joy when nothing goes right, to believe when there is no reason to, to be thankful in thankless situations. if you live a spirit-transformed life as a community of faith, as you live out God's sovereign will and purposes, you will open doors of righteousness that the world has shut. You will close doors of sin that the world has opened up as we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. I think to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of the Lord and uh, come before him in your own way. If you're not sure of whether you have been redeemed, this is the time to bring yourself. There's, there's nothing you can do or bring before the Lord to be redeemed. It is a cry of faith. It is a gift of God that he will redeem you. If there's some way that you have not fully surrendered your life to the Lord and find it difficult to make Christ your only and sole desire, I invite you to open up before the Lord and let his spirit, let his gentle spirit guide you and lead you to a place of surrender. Let's come before the Lord. Father, in this moment, we acknowledge our sins and failures before you. We acknowledge and confess our unworthiness despite whatever right intentions, whatever right that we try to do. Father, we know that we fall far short of your glory. We can only embrace the redemption that Christ brings through his sacrifice for us on the cross. And Lord, for those of us who may be for the first time truly surrendering our lives to the Lord, have mercy upon us. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We embrace His redemption by faith. Lord, there may be areas in our lives that we find it difficult to surrender to You, but You are are just and merciful. You are compassionate. You are gracious. You know our weaknesses, Lord. By faith, We want to bring all the areas of our lives that we find it difficult to surrender to you. Our family, our future, the hurts and the unforgiveness or bitterness that we hold on to. Father, at this time, we just want to bring it to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We leave it to you, Lord. We surrender it to you. And so, Lord, by faith, we embrace all that you call us to be in Christ Jesus.